Hey everyone, it's Brandon Lee, host of the podcast Escaping Rock Bottom, season three. I have an amazing guest on with me today. Um, you know, I always tell people this: uh, whenever you hear somebody on season three of the podcast, it's somebody that I believe in, um, a treatment center that I will go to bat for because I know the kind of program and the services that they're offering people. Because let me tell you this: um, just like it isn't a one size fits all approach to creating a program that may work for every addict. The same goes for a treatment center. One size does not fit all. There are some really amazing ones. And you know what? With every industry, there's an ugly underbelly and not all treatment centers are created equal. But I just want to let you know that if you're listening or you're watching this podcast, any treatment center you see on this podcast, I am partnered with. They're partners with me at Art of Our Soul. So they send me their residents for art healing. But I partner with them because I believe in them. I would send myself or any of my friends to their treatment center. So with that, I want to bring in Bobby. He is the CEO of Springboard Recovery out in Scottsdale. Bobby. Good to have you on the podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you. Okay, um, I, I love Springboard, and I actually got introduced to Springboard, I don't know, back in 2020 during the pandemic. Uh, we did kind of a, a special report on how the pandemic was starting to really impact people um, in recovery. We had some folks from Springboard on. Um, you've kind of taken control of Springboard, but before we get into what Springboard is all about and the services that you guys offer and the program that you yourself have kind of redefined over there since taking control of it, I want people to get to know you. Um, where, where was Bobby born and raised? Oh, Bobby's born and raised in Washington state. Okay. You know, I lived there until really until I got, you know, got into recovery. So, okay. Washington state. Okay. So what was your childhood like? Like, what was it fucked. like growing up? Was it fucked? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mine too. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, uh, sign me up for that one too. Yeah. You know, a childhood for me, it's, it's, it, it was crazy. Like I grew up in kind of a hostile environment. I like to say, like we were we were survivors. Uh, single mom raised me and my sister. Um, you know, my father wasn't around. He was in you know not yet in recovery, which I'm sure we might talk about later on in yeah. the story. But you know, I was just a regular kid um, growing up in Washington, and, and life was kind of hard. Mom worked six days a week so that we could have what we needed, and you know, me and my sister a lot of times kind of had to take care of ourselves. So, so it was a single mom situation. Yeah. Okay. Where and where was Dad at that time in the you know, formative at the, years? In, in, at that time, I I believe he was in Washington, um, but not in in not in your life, not in life. And see, Bobby, right then and there, um, right then and there, what people need to understand is that in and of itself is a traumatic event. Yeah. Okay, that in and of itself is traumatic for any child to not have a dad who's present in your life. And your mom could be superwoman, right? She could be doing the best she can for you. It's still traumatic, right? Because all of us need a mother and a kind of that fatherly figure or just two parents. You know, we need that support system around. So just missing that element, just missing that one element can be considered a traumatic event. So tell me then like what other what other things that you experienced maybe in your childhood that was a little difficult. You know, domestic violence. I mean, yeah, you know, sure. we were survivors. You know, I, I liked, like I said, we were a team and my mom and my sister and, mm -hmm. you know, my mom was always trying to do the best that she could. And men were definitely in and out and they weren't always super awesome to be around. And so you saw you, a lot of violence. Yeah. You see yeah. a lot of violence. And I think that just, you know, chaos was super normal for me, like mm -hmm. getting thrown out of the house in the middle of the night and running to the police department because, you know, my mom was getting beaten by somebody or, um, you know, getting woken up at three o'clock in the morning because this guy had left the house and she thought it was a safe time to get us in the car and, you know, drive to another state so that we could stay at a family member's house until she felt it was safe. God. I mean, you know, chaos and 
that was just normal. You know, it's it's crazy. At the time, you talk about it now, and you're like, that's fucking insane. But at the time, you knew no different. It was just, it was, you know, we just knew this is how life was. And, you know, I remember one time Ugh. we were looking to rent a house. And uh, one of the, the bonus parts my mom was talking to her friend was that it was only a block away from the police department. So if something happened, we could get to the police department quickly, which is crazy because there was a night about 11 o'clock that my mom came into our rooms and grabbed us. And we had to run out of the street down in you know the small little town called buckley and like break into the police department banging on the door worried that this gentleman was this person was gonna like get us you know what's so sad about that is that um you know i work a lot with people who suffered domestic violence um and i you know even in one of my adult relationships um was a victim of domestic violence i too witnessed my parents go at it um uh, they were married, but I watched them wrestle for guns and just saw a lot of violence as well. So it was kind of like my therapist goes, yeah, well, it's no real, it's real no doubt, Brandon, that in one of your relationships, you mimicked what you saw um, from normal. childhood, right? Because chaos from the outside, chaos is chaos. But if we don't heal from chaos, we will just recreate chaos later in life because that is what we know. Even though we may not love it or like it, that's just what we know. And so, you know, hearing that, your mom probably just had a lot of unhealed trauma from her childhood, right? And so when she became an adult, right, if you're unhealed from it, you almost recreate it and you pass it on. You know, not even purposefully, right? Yeah. It's just unhealed. I mean, my mom was a rock star. I mean, yeah. and I look back at it today and she did the best that she could. Absolutely. And she was always just looking, like we're always looking for love and we're looking for somebody to fulfill our lives. Yeah. And unfortunately... You know, she had a bad picker. And yeah. in that situation, you know, we kind of all went down this road. But the one thing my mom always did was show up for us. I mean, right. Um, as best that she could. And I think later on in when I got clean and sober, I was able to really go through and look at those things and not have like resentment no. and anger. Um, but see that, you she know, she really best. did love love sure. me and my sister and did the best that she That's could. That's super profound, Bobby, because I just recently forgave my mom like yeah. in the last two years it takes work it takes a lot you know and but what i can say is is that she did the best she could and what i had to finally see was my mom suffered trauma when she was mm -hmm. a kid she never shared it with me but i know she did and unfortunately that generation just didn't seek access to therapy they did it was weak it was weak because people yep. looked up our parents generation tie your shoes pull your uh, by the bootstrap damn right that's exactly it. what she said yep. get over it be stronger. Stop crying. Be, stop crying. Yeah. Right. Wow. What a different society has changed. We've finally taken a turn to well, heal. Well, we're seeing. <laughs> we're People seeing. are screwed up. People are screwed up. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I finally, two two years ago, Bobby, I, I wrote my mom an email. I don't have a relationship with her. By yeah. way. Um, and I wrote her an email. I said, listen, I said, we may not see each other in this lifetime again. Um, I said, but I never want you crossing over to the other side ever wondering or thinking, does your son hate you? Or is he mad at you? Or does he not love you? I said, I love you. I love you unconditionally. And I want you to know that I will always love you, even though we may not have a relationship. And I said, and I forgive you. What? I got an email the next day, the way I ended it saying, and I forgive you, but I was being very, very sincere. She goes, you son of a bitch, you forgive me. Why did I do God complex? Still unhealed, but still unhealed. Yeah. But at least I know she did the best she could with what she had. Right. And she did the best she could. And for that, I thank her. My shaman tells me this, Brandon, do you love your life today? 
today, like present day, December 22nd, whatever the date is. <laughs> yes, Brandon loves his, my life is amazing today. And my yeah. shaman goes, then thank her. Because had you not had the mom you did, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing now. And you love your life today. You've healed from it. Be grateful for her. Everything's and a journey. That, everything's a journey. And it, and it flipped that for me. Okay, so I love that. Yeah. I love that. Because it's really good life lessons for people who are watching or listening. It really is. Because I don't have to harbor that resentment. Because if I did toward her, it's only going to harm me. It's not going to harm her. Yeah. It's going to hurt me. And I want, you know, I say this too, <sighs> is that you and I had both fucked up childhoods. Okay? Fuck it. Okay, we did. We couldn't fight back back then. Okay? What happened to us sucked. But as adults, Bobby... Guess what? We get to flip the script. We have the adult choice to say, I don't have to be a victim to what happened to me as a child for the rest of my life. Well, and what, what makes us more better equipped to look at somebody and help them through the journey where, you know, because where I was at the beginning of my recovery, like I was definitely resentful and angry. And I used a lot of those tools to say, this is why I drank. This is why I used because, For sure. you know, I had this fucked up childhood. For but sure. then once you learn how to deal with it and you have somebody who's in early recovery For sure. and they're doing that same thing, uh-huh. when our story comes blurting out our mouth and it's dirty and it's got all the shit that they have and you're like, you know, but guess what? <laughs> yeah. I'm happy. Yeah. Like I'm married. People trust me. Like I have a great relationship with my mom today. I don't have a relationship with my father, but that came from me learning how to be safe Yes, and putting things in my life that were like, okay, there's either a relationship with a family member or there's safety and there's happiness and I choose this. And so you get all these choices and we get to teach those to other people. And I think that's, that's the strength, right? right? We don't have to be broken. No, we don't have to be. We don't have to be anymore. We can heal it. We can heal it. It's fucking amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. My life's fucking amazing today. Sorry. I'm, I, what I, were your I, drugs I, of choice? I just have to ask you this. Yeah. What were your drugs of choice? Oh, God. You know what? Everything? I mean, I had you, my... I call you a garbage pail kid. Yeah. It was like anything, anything, anybody, whatever was around, I would definitely do. Yeah. Alcohol was always there. I mean, from the beginning. Were you a drinker? You know, it was just always there. It was always yeah. part of my day, right? Okay. Like, um, but I had series, you know, when I was a kid, I loved acid and mushrooms mm-hmm. and marijuana. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I did a lot of ecstasy, which was, uh, you know, a huge part of my early story. Yeah. And then I kind of went overboard with that. You know, I got really into raves when I was, ah, I was a raver. The, oh gosh. All I had the, the big Atari pants. Um, you know those big flare bottom pants that mm-hmm. people used to the wear Jankos at raves? The Jank- the- oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> we used to go to raves in outdoors. Yeah. So like kids call them raves today. I'm like, okay, that's a club. Um, mm. It's indoors. I used to go to outdoor raves like those Indian Massive. Massive. The 25, 30 in the middle of nowhere on yeah. Indian reservations where the feds couldn't break it up. Yeah. That was me. Those were the days. So in Washington, in Seattle, we yeah. had... We had a couple different things. We had raves, which were in like warehouses. Right. Gross as shit. Oh, I mean, yeah, like yeah. sometimes you look back at what I did. And I was like, yeah, for sure. Sitting on a dirty floor. <laughs> for sure. And, for sure. For sure. Um, and then I kind of, <laughs> I, I got to the point where like we would go out all weekend and we just would go overboard. Oh, for sure. And, you know, there were times where I didn't know if I was going to come back or if yeah. I had OD'd or, you know, what was ever. So I remember at like 19, I was like, okay, maybe ecstasy for the past three years needs to stop. Um, but then I just started doing like a whole bunch of other things cause we could still go out. And then, uh, at 21, I found cocaine mm. and it was fucking game on. I yeah. mean, it was like, it was everything I ever wanted. You know, I could drink, I could do drugs. I could stay up all night. I could, um, you know, get up the next day and for be sure. like, go, go, go. And you know, three hours of sleep got just very normal for me. You know, I remember going to bed at three and being excited because, okay, I don't have to be to work till seven. So three to six, that's three hours. Like I can do that. 
You know what I mean? Our, I had to sleep for like nine or ten now. I need to like I need to. See I'm in it. sleep by nine thirty. Right? <laughs> like you know, we're watching TV in bed and like you know, my Me husband will be passed I out. Laugh. So it's amazing. It's hilarious. Like I feel you on that. I was in New York City at the height of my drug addiction when I was 20, 21, 22, 23 years old, nineteen too. Um, and we used to go to bed um, on Saturday night at like ten or eleven o'clock at night. We'd wake up at six in the morning on Sunday and. We'd go to Twilo, a nightclub in New York City at 6 a.m. on Glamorous, Sunday. Glamorous, of course. Like, wake yeah. up, and people would be jogging, having their morning yeah. cup of coffee in the cafes in New York, and we'd be fucking tripping out on drugs, going to nightclubs on the east side, like, just twacked out of our minds. Um, okay, so eventually, you hit rock bottom, like, as we all do, that, that, that wake-up point, you yeah. know, that, that rock bottom. That, everybody's rock bottom looks different. Um, you can't, I mean, somebody's like, don't you see how screwed up your life is? I'm like, they don't see it yet. I thought it was fabulously like winning at life. Yeah. And like looking back at it now, I was definitely failing and it looked like it was failing. It was bad. Um, How did you get out of that? How did you, how did you, how did you turn it around? You know, I can remember. So, you know, my, my sobriety date is January 24th, 2008. Um, and I remember I went to treatment that day mm. and it was January 23rd at about two 30 in the morning. And you know how you have these things. I don't know you do, but I had these like lists of things that I would not do. Mm. Right. Like that's just not me. That's not me. Well, those last 45 days, I like, I checked every one of those fucking boxes from prostitution to I mean, the, the whole, I mean, I could go down right. many roads of things that like you just, you kind of come to the next day and you're like, oh my God, did I really just do I that? Did that. Yeah. I really did that. And you know, taking a shower for 45 minutes because you can't like clean off enough the grossness that you feel inside of your soul. Right. And I remember it was two o'clock in the morning and I had ran out of, you know, I'd ran out of drugs. And usually when I ran out of cocaine, I would drink to go to sleep yeah. and I didn't have enough alcohol and everything was closed. And um, I just remember laying in my bed. I had a mattress on the floor in this, you know, this duplex that a buddy of mine were renting. And, you know, um, I just remember planning my death. You know, I remember sitting, laying there thinking I'm going to do it in a tub. And at the time I had been drinking wine. Well, I had always drank wine, but I'd buy these cheap gallons of wine. Mm -hmm. And I was scared to throw them away because I thought people would know that I was an alcoholic. For sure. And so my... Um, closet was stacked with these cheap bottles of wine. And I knew, okay, I got to figure out a way to get those to the garbage. I've got to do it in the, in the, in the tub because like, that's probably going to be the best way. I had this drawer of all old baggies of cocaine and I thought, okay, I got to clean that out. Cause my mom would be totally, you know, like I'm seriously, I'm getting it done. I'm like, I'm going to die. And the, and the reason that I was ready to die was because it stopped working. Mm. You know, I could get high and I could get drunk and I could do drugs and I could use sex and all these things for a long time to feel better. And it just didn't make me feel better anymore. Yeah. It just, there wasn't enough to like numb out, you know, what was going on. I think, you know, I think drug addicts and alcoholics are pretty intense human beings. For sure. And we're looking for connection. And, you know, today I have a higher power that I can kind of plug into and I feel charged up. For sure. And drugs and alcohol were that higher power for a long time. And Beautifully I think any time you use like artificial anything that's not actually like real, like your higher power, it diffuses over time. And drugs were just that. And alcohol was that. And sex was just that. And it didn't work. And so I wanted to die because I didn't know how to be happy. Can I ask you this question? 
I feel like we've lived very similar lives and we got sober around the same time too. A uh, sex addiction was a huge, huge claw on the me. And it was meth. It was just meth and sex. And I just like would hit up all these bathhouses and I just, I, I just remember, I was actually talking to my shaman about this last night. I said, Toby, like, because I'm so free and I'm so happy now and I'm so light, right? And I truly never thought this was possible. I never truly thought this version of Brandon would be possible. And I was telling him, I was like, man, Toby, there was a time where I was sitting in the parking lot of this bathhouse in LA, like in the slums of LA, by the way. And I was crying in my Jeep and I had a pipe in my hand and I just said to myself, like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I don't want to go in. I was like a zombie, like Mm. just watching these guys go in and out of this door, like into this place. And I'm like, I just don't want this anymore. Like, but at the same time, I remember vividly saying this to myself. I'm like, dude, this is going to be the rest of your life. That's how much I truly felt like I would never be able to stop. Mm. And I walked in like a zombie. That's how much autopilot. That's how much of a grip it had on me. But I can sit here and tell you now through a lot of fucking work. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. But continuous work. Like I just did a shaman session every Tuesday for two hours. Like, Like that's what it takes. Okay. But I, I'm not a sex addict anymore. Like to be able to say that and be like, Oh my God. Like I'm not, I'm not. And it's, it's so freeing though like i just it's so freeing to have this and i want people to know like it can't get any worse than where i was at like the only thing worse was death and i was in a coma twice in two weeks on my deathbed so i was there knocking on death's door so it couldn't get any worse and what i want you to know is like dude i'm here and i'm not a sex addict anymore and like am i an intense individual you bet your fucking ass i'm a pretty intense dude um <laughs> but I'm not that anymore. Yeah. You know, we change. You know, we can change. It was a huge part of the story. I mean, I think it is for a lot of gay men. Um I, yeah. I don't like to just blanket that. No, right? it's like, huge. Um but it's huge. You know, I remember when I when I got sober, um I had never had sober ever. sex. Ever. Me either. And the first time it happened, I was a fucking mess. I, I was worse too. I, was I shook and I, I got was shaking sick. Too. Yeah. And the person was like, what is wrong with you? And I was like, God only knows, yeah. you know, this. Um, and so it's taken a lot of work. I well, mean, because we, we have to rewire our brains. I mean, when we only, when, I asked even one of my fucking normie friends. Yeah. I was like, yo, when was the last time you had sober sex? And they looked at me. I was like, no, serious. I'm being dead serious. I don't, I, I, I'm talking, you didn't even have a glass of fucking wine at yeah. dinner. Okay. I'm talking fucking sober. Even some of them are like, uh, wow, not even a glass of wine. No. So like when we have sex the way you and I had sex, right? Tied to meth, right? We are essentially wiring our brains permanently it's to be bl- like, yeah. you cannot have sex unless meth is attached to it. Yeah. Right. So then when we quit meth, Sex doesn't know how to fucking operate. Yeah. It's like, well, wait, wait. I only know how to operate when I am attached to meth. So when you detach meth, sex doesn't know how. You have to truly reform and retrain yourself healthy ways to live. Yeah. And, and sex I, is one of them. And, and I think I didn't fully, it wasn't until I met my husband today that I really was able to come to a healthy 
relationship with sex, yes. with love, yes. and that they can be together. Yes. And so, um, you know, I'm very blessed. I mean, I have a wonderful husband today. Yeah. And we have a, just a very normal, you know, relationship. And I'm grateful. And your husband's a normie. Right? Yeah, he's a normie. He's a normie. Yeah. I know. He doesn't even know he doesn't know Bobby. You know, I always tell him he's like right, if right, right, you right. met me in two thousand and seven, you would have walked right past me. past you. He wouldn't even have yeah. said hello because they Absolutely. can sense our energy. No, 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 no. He he fell in love with the sober version. Yeah. So but you know what's crazy? It's the beautiful it's the most beautiful compliment. It's when I meet people and I've been sober a long time, so as as of you. Right. So people in my life today have only ever known me sober. There's right. very I mean, very, very few people who saw the before and after. Very few. So everybody asked me, they're like, Brandon, seriously? Like, you can't have a glass of champagne with us. We're toasting at a wedding. Like, ready? Like, you can't. Brandon. Negative. They're like, Brandon, you, this is the best part. Brandon, you are the most in control person <laughs> yeah. that I've ever met. Brandon, you are always so in control of everything. Like, you can have a glass of champagne. You'll be fine. Be your, I was like, thank you for saying that. Yeah. Because those words would have never been used to describe me. My nickname when I was a droid was Hurricane Brandon. Here it comes. Here it comes. Yeah. Walking to a bar, people are like, oh, fuck. Yep. And I would go in and cause a fucking storm and then leave the place battered. And so, but that's a compliment, right? Is that when people people only see us as this and they, they think of us in such different terms. They also don't understand that a lot of people who have substance use disorders are like high functioning individuals you know what i mean because we had to live multiple lives like i had to live like my drug life and i had to live like my not drug life where i had to be like and then i had to live a family life and then i had to be like you know there's all these things and when you get rid of it all of a sudden you're like oh fuck this is easy right like the you know what i mean because like we can just we can focus in if we really do the work i mean there are not everybody has that but a lot of people are high functioning right oh super high functioning but I also say this, like addicts are extremely smart people, smart and brilliant and artistic. Well, like, they're, they, they're deep, right? Like Deep, layered. Yeah, I was layered, only a couple of years sure. um, in recovery and I watched this guy speak and he said like, the difference between me and my brother, because his brother wasn't in recovery and didn't have a substance right. use disorder. He goes, when I was eight and I, and I like did something and my mom like reprimanded me, like I would go to my room and I thought the world had ended. Mm. Like I thought she didn't love me. And my brother got in trouble for the same exact thing. And he's like, what the fuck is the problem? Get over it. Right. Right. Like we're sensitive individuals and some people can think that's a weakness, but I really think it's this amazing gift for us to have really deep empathy for people and connect on levels that others just don't, they just don't get, get. And I don't, no, I, I'm with you 100% on that. And that transitions as, you know, in the next five minutes as we begin to close. But that transitions, because I want people to get to know you first, because Bobby's going to be on the podcast quite a few times. Um, and I wanted people to get to know you like, first. Am I qualified? Did yeah. I use enough drugs? Yeah, right. But here's the thing, right? Is that we have this unique way to have compassion and empathy for the good, right? To help other people now. And I think that's what's so beautiful about you being, you know, the CEO of Springboard Recovery, because you really are in charge of mapping out how a program should look like by wanting to help people. And I think that's important because there are some treatment centers that are so money-driven, right? They're so money-driven. And it doesn't have to be that way. And when you have a CEO who is part of a treatment center that will always have the patient experience first, man, you can change a lot of lives. So what are you guys doing? And what is your number one 
focus as the CEO of a place of Springboard? Like when you go to work and you create a program, what is that number one focus for you? Whew. You know, it's, it's really easy. The number one focus is to be the best treatment center 100% of the time that we can be. And when I say that, it's not yeah. to say we're better than everybody else or no. we're doing things better or whatever, but it's that every person that works at Springboard has the same emotional reaction as I do. When someone walks through the door, we give them 100%. They walk in, is this the best intake? Is this the best psych assessment? Is this the best counseling session? Is this the best program? Is mm. this program the best thing they're ever going to get? And that's just what we do from the beginning to the end. And, it, and I, it's not just patients, right? It's also employees. I mean, I'm very employee focused at, at Springboard. It's one of my it's my passion because a lot of the people that work for us are in recovery, right? Like we have people and I can go through name after name after name. Josh has been on this program, you know, in some of the, the earlier podcasts, but I mean, seeing him grow and change his life from where he was to owning a house and having kids and being married and yeah. seeing people like Dylan and Megan and all these people that work for me that uh, work at Springboard that I see their lives change and I feel empathy and want to see them succeed. They pass that on to patients. We're not, you know, we're not this big corporation no. that doesn't care. And it doesn't mean that's bad. It just means our main focus is patients. And what we specialize is substance use treatment. And we, we stay really focused on that. Um, and I think that's rare. You know, there's a lot of other facilities um, all over the country that are doing a bit of everything. Mm. And for us, we really try to stay focused on just a robust program that offers things like, you know, like what you're doing in your yeah. art, art practice. I mean, and the feedback from that has been amazing because when they come here, like, that's not, this is treatment? Yeah. And we're like, yeah, this is, this is you getting better. This is you learning how to do things in a way that are fun. Like yeah. a lot of people come back from your, your Saturday session yeah. and they're like, I haven't, I haven't had fun for, for ye years. Yeah. You're like a that right there. Oh, I think. that makes my heart happy. And it makes our heart happy oh, to see that our patients get that type that of feedback, that type of thing. Right. Like, and I think springboard does, I mean, I can go through all the program modalities oh, and all the bullshit, right. every, not bullshit, but you well, know, no, it's I mean, just modalities. But the every, reality of every it treatment is center has modalities. we're just, we're the best. Yeah. And it, like I said, it's not cocky in the way that we're better than no, others. It's, it's that when they walk in, is this the best? And you know, I can see, but I can see that impact. And I mean, I, I can see that impact when I, I call them my Saturday, my weekend crew, my Saturdays. Um, when I see them, like I can see them. I, I know when somebody is week number one. Yeah. And I see them on week number two. I see that same group on week number three. And then I see them on week number four. I see a difference than that person who is fresh at Springboard. And then I see them in week two. They're more comfortable. They're a little bit more outgoing. They're a little yeah. more engaging. And I see growth. I see people come out of their shelves in my art studio. I see them grow and I see them start to smile. And we it's pound amazing. the music. It's freaking amazing. Yeah. It is freaking amazing. But it's not just, you're like, oh, like I know the work that they're doing Monday through Friday at Springboard because then I see them on Saturday and I see the growth that they're having by the time they hit my art studio the next the next time. Yeah. They're asking me questions. They're like, hey, B, come over here and look at this. Like, should I add this color? Like, they're more engaged, yeah. right? It's because they're starting to come out of that little cocoon, right? And they're starting to grow as humans and grow in that sober life. And I love it. Um, all right. So we're going to wrap up now. Um, if you've been watching this podcast, you've seen on the lower part of your screen all the information that you need uh, to reach out to the folks over at Springboard, whether it's intake. You guys do IOP as well? Correct. 
uh, for IOP. So if you want to learn more about Springboard, you can pick up the phone, call their intake number, or you could check them out online. You could see the website right there. Um, Bobby is the CEO of Springboard. Bobby, we're going to have you back and we'll continue the conversation about different other modalities and different things that are going on at Springboard um, throughout. But I'm super grateful to have you guys as partners too. Thanks. It's been amazing. I mean, yeah. we're very grateful to have uh, yeah. this for awesome. our patients. So Yeah, it's really awesome. Bobby over at Springboard, we will see you back here for the next episode.